unused tomb chiseled out of solid rock. A new unused tomb that was chiseled out of solid rock. Then it's almost like an afterthought. Luke adds, it was preparation day. And the Sabbath was fast approaching. I just love the way that phrase works. It was preparation day. Like, oh, all this horrible stuff is happening. The, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, our Messiah, our teacher, has been crucified. And he's taken off a cross and he's put into a borrowed tomb, a place that was chiseled out of solid rock. And oh, by the way, it was pre- preparation day. And the Sabbath day was fast approaching. Before you're seated, Father... Let your word come alive in our hearts. Let your word come alive in our ears. We want to hear the word differently, perhaps, than we've ever heard before. We don't want it to just be another story that we hear at a religious holiday. In fact, God, I pray that you would wash that whole religious holiday mess out of our minds forever and ever and ever. Let us never see this as just something that we do. But God, never let us lose connection to what happened on this day 2,000 years ago. Come on, one more time before you see it. Let's clap our hands and make some noise for Jesus. We're coming to the end of our series that we started the last Sunday of March that we're calling The Doors. And this door is a strategic one. And, and this is one of the original sermons that God began to give me in this series last summer when He started pouring it into us. Because there, there's something powerful about what happened on Passover night 2,000 years ago. There was something amazing that began to take place. It, it goes beyond any ceremony. It goes beyond any religious attitudes or maybe even any religious sacraments. It goes to a place where God does amazing things. And I, what I want to do is I just want to unpack it real quick and show you some things, and then we're going to close out tonight as we prepare for Resurrection Sunday. We're going to close out receiving communion together and just worshiping God, remembering what He did. So if you need a title for tonight, we're just simply calling it the Passover Door. Everybody say Passover Door. If you want to follow along on the notes, you can either send the text or you can use the Church Center app, and all the notes are there for you. I want to talk to you real quick about Sabbathing. It, 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 Luke, in the way that he's unpacking this, he, he says that it was preparation day. What does that mean? It means it was the day that they were beginning to prepare for the Sabbath. The day was beginning to go away, so they had to do things quickly because at a certain time of the night, they were no longer allowed to do any work. They had to do what they were going to do very quickly because it was preparation day. And the Sabbath was fast approaching. You're like, well, what in the world does Sabbath have to do with the Easter story? You have to understand that Sabbath is the culmination of everything in the Mosaic Law. If you're unclear what the Mosaic Law is, if you go to the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, that word that sounds a little funny. I used to call it the Deuter Who book because I couldn't say Deuteronomy. 
But that is what is comprised in our understanding of the Mosaic Law. These are the five books that God gave directly to Moses for, for Moses to write down exactly how holy God was and everything it was going to take for humanity to even get close to him. And Sabbath is literally the culmination of everything in the Mosaic Law. Here, here's what it does. It, it connects to creation because on the seventh day, God rested. It also foreshadows salvation because that's where we begin to see the, the beginning inklings of a personal relationship with Jesus that goes beyond just a religious experience. When we see Sabbath, we see that the God of all gods actually wants to be in one-on-one interactive personal daily relationship with you and I. We see this in Sabbath. But it also epitomizes God's promises that we see in Exodus chapter 6, verses 6, 7, and 8. And by the way, if you're not familiar with that passage of Scripture, that is the biblical foundation of the church that you're worshiping in this weekend. We build everything off of Exodus chapter 6, verses 6, 7, and 8. God gives four promises. He said, I'm going to give you the promise of salvation. I'm going to get you out of your oppression in Egypt, and then I'm going to deliver you. That is that, that promise of deliverance. I'm going to get Egypt out of you, and then I'm going to redeem you, the promise of redemption. A lot of people think that's salvation, but that's not salvation. That's the promise of a repurposing. You used to be this, but now I'm going to repurpose you to be something that's so much greater. And then that fourth promise of fulfillment, he says, I'm going to bring you into a country that I prepared for you. I promised it to you. And then when you get there, I'm going to make your life better than you've ever realized. And I am going to be your God. These are the four promises that God gave in in Exodus chapter 6. And these promises are literally threaded throughout the word of God. You can see them in the plan of salvation. You can see them throughout the teachings that Jesus did in the four gospels. You can see them woven intricately into everything that Paul and and the writer to the Hebrews and Jude and and James and, and, and all the other ones, John and all the books that John wrote. And then John 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. I think John wrote like 47 books in there. They only kept like four of them. But you see the promises of God because the promises, like we sang last Sunday, the promises of God never fail. If he gives you a promise, you can stand on it. And why do we know this? Because he gave us the promise of Sabbath. And Sabbath literally is the epitomization of everything that God promised all the way back early in his law. I know I kind of feel like I'm on a rant a little bit because I keep coming back to the deal that modern day Christianity wants to separate us from the Old Testament, wants to separate us from the law. No, I live in grace. I I don't live according to the law. Well, you may be right, but you have to understand you will never realize the power of grace until you understand the severity of the law. Don't push away from it because you don't understand it. Lean into it and say, Father, open my understanding and breathe your word into me because your word is alive. Your word is forever settled and your word is real because you are your word. I want to understand what you're saying. I want to understand who you are and I want to understand that every one of your promises are yea and amen. Amen? Praise God. I was feeling my preach going there for a second. Let me get some breath there. The foundation and the observance of and the practice of Sabbath begins with the fulfillment of God's first promise of salvation. Of the four promises, salvation is the one that we celebrate the most. 
We see the observance of Sabbath, and then the way that we practice it out on a daily basis, we begin to see this through that promise of salvation. He says, I'm going to free you from your oppression in Egypt. I'm going to take you out of all of this pressure into a place of rest. This is what Sabbathing is all about. What we see here is that the promise of salvation actually happened on the night of the very first Passover, all the way in the Old Testament. God gave some very specific instructions as to how they were to prepare the meal, how they were to prepare themselves, and even how they were to prepare their house. Like, man, I thought we were here to celebrate Easter. Let me get there. Let me show you. This okay. God was very specific. I want you to prepare the meal this way. I think God does that from time to time just to remind us I am a God of details. You can't just come to me any way you want to. You can't come to me the way that you think is comfortable. you got to come to me the way that I say to come to me because I am the way, the truth, and the life. I'm feeling my preaching. Let me back up. I want you to prepare the meal a certain way. I want you to prepare yourself to receive this meal a certain way. And I want you to prepare your house for what is about to happen. Let's go real quick to Exodus chapter 12. We're going to piece through just a few verses here, 11 to 13. Here's the words from God. These are your instructions for eating this meal. Notice this. Be fully dressed. Wear your sandals. Wearing shoes inside the house was not a common theme in the day. You would come into the house, you would take your shoes off. I don't like to do that because I got ugly toes. But in a Jewish house, when you came into the house, the first thing you do is you would take your sandals off and the servant, like we learned last night, would wash your feet and clean your feet and make sure that you were comfortable. But, but God says, no, 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 I want you to be fully clothed. I want you to have your sandals on. And carry your walking stick in your hand. Eat the meal with urgency, for this is the Lord's Passover. Everybody say the Lord's Passover. You see here that God is intentionally connecting himself with this meal, this Passover to himself. He is not saying, this is just something I want you to observe. I want you to understand that this thing that I'm about to do is mine. It belongs to me. It is an extension of who I am. So I want you to be prepared for when you eat this meal. I want you to be ready, and I want you to take it serious. It's not just a a ceremony. It's not something magical. It's not something otherworldly. It is a very real, practical practice. And when you do this, you are connecting yourself with me. Y'all understanding where we're going tonight? Take it serious. Be ready. Be ready to move. Because when I show up, like that song we sing, this is a move, right? Be ready to move. Be ready to get involved in what I'm doing because this Passover is mine. Let's pick up the next verse. On that night I will pass through the land of Egypt and I will strike down every firstborn son and firstborn male animal in the land of Egypt. And God is harsh. I will execute judgment against all the gods of Egypt. For I am the Lord. This doesn't seem like the happy-go-lucky religious modern-day Jesus that we see with the beautiful British accent and the ice-blue eyes that just cut through the darkness 
and the long flowing locks of curls. This seems like a God that's serious about what he's saying, right? I'm going to execute judgment. The first Passover literally demonstrates God's divine judgment, but you need to have some, under, some understanding and some context so it will make some sense. Judgment was given because Egypt for centuries, had exalted themselves above God. This was a a nation that was literally built on idolatry. In fact, you can go back in history. I don't have time to unpack it tonight, even though a lot of times I would take the time. I'm not going to take the time tonight. But you can go back in history, and you can literally trace the source of Egyptian theology all the way back to Nimrod and his mother and the idolatry that they established that exalted humanity above God. And then that not only did they exalt humanity above God, they became polytheists, meaning they believed in so many variants of God and, and they began to worship everything and they began to do all these funky things and believe it or not, that mess is still finding its way even into Christianity in our day and age. This religion and this theology had exalted itself, and God said, I will not stand for that anymore. He said, how do you know this? Paul talks about it in the book of Romans. He said, hey, Pharaoh was nothing but playing a bit part in what God was going to do. God was going to take his vengeance out on idolatry by showing them how powerful he was. And their idolatry was passed down from generation to generation through the firstborn sons. And you could almost assume or read it this way, that the firstborn sons were the passageway of the mess that was passed from mom and dad down to the children. From the patriarchs down to the ancestry, it passed through the firstborn son. That's why it was so important. They literally built things in their society around the the prominence and the power of their firstborn. And God said, you think you've got everything together? I will go to the thing that you hold most precious, and I will execute my judgment just so that you will know who I am. Aren't you thankful for Calvary and grace? What does this have to do with Passover? This is why Passover was important. Let's go to the next verse. But the blood, everybody say the blood. The blood on your doorpost will serve as a sign marking the houses where you are staying. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague of death will not touch you when I strike the land of Egypt. When my judgment starts coming, my judgment is looking for human reasoning and human idolatry. And my judgment comes in and my judgment is looking. And when I see it, I'm coming to execute judgment. Oh, wait, I see some blood. I'm not going there. Let me find some. Oh, there's blood over here. My divine judgment comes to take care of things and set things right. But when I see the blood, I will pass over. Here's the deal. The blood of a spotless lamb that was applied to the doorpost of their home provided an escape from God's judgment because the blood marked them and it separated them from the Egyptians. The Egyptians lived all the way around them. They were surrounded by Egyptians, and the Egyptians would not apply the blood, but the children of God began to apply the blood to the doorposts of their home. And when, when God would see the blood, he'd say, No, I'm going to pass over. It not only served as protection from his judgment, but it served as a separation from the world around. Let me ask you this question. How close is your life to the world around you? Have you applied the blood to your life? Is the blood prominent? 
on the thing that holds your house strong. The doorpost is one of the strongest places in, in a building. Why apply the blood there? I want to apply it to the place of strength. I want to apply it to the place where you think everything is safe. I want you to know that your strength doesn't come from you. Your strength comes from who I am and the identity of who I am. The Passover is not just about us receiving the free gift of salvation. Passover is a display of God's power over anything that separates us from him. Passover is the power of God saying, I'm greater than that thing that's separating you. I'm greater than the thing that's pushing on you. The thing that's trying to get in between you and I, my Passover is showing you that I'm greater. My Passover is letting you know that I am greater than all of this situation. My Passover is letting you know that I've got divine purpose, I've got divine power, and I am ready to pour out my divine power in your situation. How many of you are thankful for his divine power tonight? Let me dig into this in closing. Sabbath is a day of our rest. You thought I forgot about Sabbath, got all hung up on Passover. Let me show you real quick. Sabbath is a day of our rest. Remember, we've got that connection. It goes all the way back to to creation. It ties in with that whole salvation process. And Passover ties in with that salvation process. And while Sabbath is for us, Passover is the doorway into God's action and into his power. If you want to find yourself in the place where God is moving, you got to learn how to physically connect in with that whole Passover process. Is this too deep tonight? In Sabbath, and, and, and here's the deal. I, I take a Sabbath. I, I take Mondays off. I shut my phone off, and if you try to get me, you won't get me because I'm taking my, I'm taking my time off. I've got a Sabbath. I've got to recharge. I have to literally stop producing. And I teach this to the leadership of our church. You need to have a time where you push away from everything. But pushing away from everything without refilling with the power is just a day off. That doesn't breed effectiveness. That breeds laziness. you got to connect with power when you push away from the things that you produce. You have to connect him with the thing and the action of God's power and let him begin to fill you and recharge you. He's not going to recharge you as you just veg out on the couch and eat chips, although that is a wonderful thing to do on your day off. But the thing that is going to recharge you is when you plug back in with the thing that passed over his judgment, when you apply the blood of the lamb to your life and you get lost in a moment of worship. Hey, here's the deal. You may not get 24 hours of rest, but you can come into the presence of God and say, apply the blood to me. And as you begin to worship, you'll find that life begins to surge into you again. This is how you reconnect in with Passover. Luke chapter 23, verse 54, it was preparation day and the Sabbath was fast approaching. Got things we got to do. There's things we've got to get done because we've got to get you off the cross. We've got to get you into the tomb because we've got to take that day of rest because we've got, we've got, oh man, we've done so much. We, we just got to chill. We just got to lay back. We just, y'all with me? Setting the stage for that. He was died and he was buried on preparation day. But he had already celebrated Passover with the twelve. 
Remember, he, he preempted it. He got a little bit ahead of him. Because he knew he had other plans on the, the day of, of Sabbath and on the day of Passover. I've, I've already done this. Understand this. No work could happen on the Sabbath. And so they place him into a borrowed tomb. And then they go on about their religious duty. They go on about their process. They go on back to their ceremony. Observing what God did centuries and centuries before in creation. God, you rested, so we're going to rest today. You command rest. But on this particular Sabbath, God didn't rest. God went to work. All other Sabbaths, God pushed away from producing, laid the foundation. But on this particular one, hey, my body's done, but I got something that I need to take care of. Y'all with me tonight? I know you're resting but I've got some work to do. Ephesians 4 teaches us that he who ascended also descended so that when he ascended again, he took captivity captive. That's, a, that's like a turn of phrase that just turns back on top of itself. I get all confused when I read that. If I read that in like a literal translation, I'm like, I don't even understand what that means. Let me break it down for you real quick. Jesus is the Passover door. So the one who is and was and always will be descended to earth. And before he ascended back into heaven, he poured his life out and gave his life as the ultimate sacrifice for all sin. And his body was buried in a tomb because that's what you do with dead things. You put them in a tomb so that they can rest. The Bible teaches us that those who are dead are asleep. They're not watching anything. They're not observing what you're doing tonight. Your loved ones that have gone on before you are not saying, oh, they're having good church. No, they are asleep. If you believe the Bible, I happen to believe the Bible. It's just the way I live my life. But Jesus didn't go to sleep. He let his body rest. And I love this part. Jesus in this moment went to hell so you don't have to. He who had ascended also descended into the depths of hell, into the depths of captivity. And I I want you to know this. I'm so glad that my God did not take a rest when his body gave out. My God said, hey, I have to put on a physical body. I've got to let that body die so that my spirit can be cast into the place that is in that has separated humanity from me for generations and generations. It's my plan and the only way that I can break my plan is for me to die and go down into the place that is created to separate people. So God himself descends into hell and when he gets into hell the Bible says that he goes to work and he takes captivity by the hand and he leads it captive Here's the deal. As he begins to ascend, he goes, oh, by the way, devil, you think you've got all this? You think this is your realm? Go ahead and give me the keys to death, hell, and the grave. You will no longer keep people separated. 
You no longer keep people bound. You no longer keep people separated from me because of things that they've done in their past. Here's the deal. Because Jesus went to hell for you, your past has no power in your present. Your past has no power in your future because he went to hell for you and he took the keys away. Why are you so excited? Because I know what I've done. I know what has separated me from God. I am so thankful that as he ascended back up, he took the keys and perversion and alcoholism and addiction no longer has any hold on my life. I am so thankful that my God died on a cross. But let me tell you, I'm more thankful that he was buried. Because when he was buried, he went to work doing something that only he could do. Why did he have to die? Why couldn't he just snap his fingers like Thanos in a Marvel movie? Because snapping his fingers wouldn't do the trick. God said, no, this is personal for me. I'm going to get personal with my creation. The ones who are the apple of my eye. And no matter what you're facing, no matter what you're going through in your life, he's watching you right now and he's saying, hey, I've already taken care of it. I already descended so you don't have to. I didn't even prepare prepare hell for you. I don't want you to go to hell. I don't want any human being to ever go to hell. Someone said, why would God, a loving God, send people to hell? That's not his plan. In fact, he went so you wouldn't have to. But he rose out of that place, that place of separation, that place of hell and grave and just darkness and and just hurt and pain and says, I've got the keys. And if you want the keys, you got to meet me in the middle of this thing that I call Passover. It's not a ceremony. Nothing mystical happens. But you meet me in this moment and watch what I can do in your life. When you begin to understand that my body was broken so you don't have to stay broken. And my body was torn so you don't have to be torn from all of the things that you hold precious and all the things that you hold dear. And I spilled my spotless, innocent blood out so that you don't have to pay the price for your sins any longer. I have conquered death, hell, and the grave. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 9 to 11. So there is a special rest. Everybody say special rest. There's a special rest waiting for the people of God. For all who have entered into God's rest have rested from their labors. So let us do our best to enter that rest. How do we do that? Here's how we do it. We enter the rest that God planned By applying the blood to the doorpost of our life. I'm not genuflecting here. I'm just putting the blood on the doorpost. Babe, kids, I'm going to apply the blood to the strength of our family. Because I want His judgment to pass over and I want His mercy to pull us into rest Because next year we're going to have three high school kids. Holy crap. And life is going to get tough. You're going to go through things. You're going to to have sicknesses. You're going to have all. 
you're going to have all this stuff happen. You're going to try to manage it yourself and you're not going to be able to. So here's what you do. You just apply the blood to the doorpost. Well, how often do I have to do this? Not, not have to. How often do I get to do this? Wake up in the morning. Let, let me just apply some blood to the doorpost of my life. You're going to lunch. You don't even have any bread and juice, but get ready to eat a sandwich. Father, I'm, I'm doing this in remembrance of you. By the way, that's where we get the whole context for praying before we eat. It's observing Passover. Thank you for what you did on the cross. But thank you more for what you did in the grave for me. Easter time, we don't, a lot of, we don't talk a lot about what happens on Saturday. But aren't you glad to know that your God didn't rest on His Sabbath? He went to work for you. So here's, here's what I'm going to give you. I want to challenge you to begin to celebrate His Passover so that you can live in His Sabbath. Learn to celebrate His Passover so you can live in that place of rest. What does that even mean? Learn to live in the place where mercy was poured out for you so you can live every day in the open arms of an amazing God. That sound good to anybody? So here's what I want us to do. I want to pray right before we're ending. We're all going to observe communion. I'm going to invite everyone to do this. Again, this is not a religious ceremony. No one has to touch this for it to be special. In fact, I told you all this last night. I never prepare the communion sacraments at our church because I don't want anyone to think that it's special because I touched it. We have a team of people that prepare this every time we do communion and they pray over it. They're, they're very intentional with it. They pray over it and they, they, they're already praying for you before you take it. People say, well, can my kids say yes? In fact, you, you should get some, some Welch's and some stanky crackers, and at your house, you need to observe communion with your kids often. Start learning how to do this on, on an often basis. Don't, don't do it so often that it just becomes ritual. But do it to remind yourself. Turn your lunchtime, turn your dinner time, turn breakfast, oh God, the best meal of the day. Start turning all that into a remembrance of who He is and what He did. So here's what I want us to do. Every head bowed. Nobody look around. Every eye closed. Father, I pray that you would meet us in this moment. We're going to observe your Passover. We're going to do this as families. And, we're, and if there's anyone here tonight who is alone, Lord, I, I pray that you would show them that they can go stand with another family because we don't want anyone to eat your supper by themselves because in you no one is ever alone. Because you place the lonely in families. So Father, remind us as we eat this bread that your body was broken for us. And as we drink this juice, Lord, remind us that you spilled innocent blood to purchase our salvation. But Lord, most of all, remind us that when we yield and surrender to who you are and what your plan is, that you invite us into a place of eternal rest that nothing in hell can ever take us out of. Lord, invite us into that place of rest tonight. 
Paul teaches us in 1 Corinthians 11 that we should not take of the Lord's Supper unworthily. Here's what that simply means. is Don't make it a frivolous ritual. Take it with seriousness and take it with intentionality. And start off with repentance. So here's what I want us to do. I want to lead all of us in a prayer of repentance. Just say something like this. You don't have to use these words, but let it come from your heart. Just say, Jesus, I'm sorry for everything in me that has ever separated me from you. And I'm sorry that in my human ignorance, I did not realize that I was exalting myself above you. But I want to step down off the throne of my life. And I want you to be my God. Today, Lord, I recommit my life to you. Today, Lord, I surrender every one of my plans and every one of my agendas, Lord. I surrender them, surrender them to you. You are my God. You are the Lord of my life. You are my Savior because I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. So, Jesus, I invite you into my heart right now. I'm not worthy to celebrate your salvation, but you make me worthy because you save me. So I receive your salvation right now, Lord. And as I partake of this supper tonight, Lord, I want you to know that you are all that I want. In Jesus' name.